public art it is important it's kind of equity within the public and and i don't think that should be shut off to one person or another really it's about you being able to decide as an art lover or as not an art lover whether you like it or not without having to pay the price and sometimes you might look at them and think it doesn't really do anything for me or you might think stronger words than that to me coming from a very kind of traditional background since i am bulgarian it's just absolutely magnificent that you can actually see art everywhere. The theory of it, I think, is very important. The questionable bit is the selective tastes that decide what the public will see. I always felt in some ways that maybe a better contribution would be more money spent on decorating houses and the gardens. That would be the public art that might have been most appreciated. In my view, public art is essential in introducing art into people's lives if they don't usually go out of their way to experience it. And hopefully it's a doorway into art being part of their lives more generally. I'm Helen Phoebe, Head of Curatorial Programme at Yorkshire Sculpture Park, and I have a special interest in why all art isn't public. I developed a specialism around public art during my PhD at the University of Liverpool. I was working in a gallery and a group of teenage boys got turned away at the front door. It made me really angry and I was struggling to really understand why it made me angry. And then I realised it's because the art belonged to those young men as much as anybody else. And that's what really set my research inquiry for my PhD as to why are certain publics apparently welcome in galleries and others aren't. And I read quite recently that the whole underpinning of curatorial practice is to be hospitable. And I think that's something that I've really tried to carry with me, that if you create a welcoming space and environment, then it is open to everybody. We are at Yorkshire Sculpture Park and I've never been here before. It's a really nice place to come and enjoy the countryside, the sculptures. We can walk the dogs here. It's actually kind of a halfway point for all of us. So we've just come to take in the countryside and kind of look at sculptures a little bit, didn't we? We wanted to show our friend who's come over from Malaysia um, some something that we think is really nice in Yorkshire. I've come here today because they brought me here. <laughs> <laughs> we only come for the chips. It's an open plinth where a statue was meant to stand. The society said that it should instead be a showcase for works from a rotating group of artists. Touching down at midnight last night, Canary Wharf's newest artwork, Old flow. The but this isn't received definition of public art is that it is art for a public space that's readily accessible outside of a usual institution environment. I've come to understand that as being public art is something that people don't choose to encounter. It's something that in their day-to-day -day lives they will come across. Some of the most stunning prehistoric art has been closed off from visitors for more than 50 years. But Nature reports on the remarkable discovery of a female figurine in a cave in southwestern Germany, believed to be at least 35,000 years old. There's evidence that humans and our ancestors have made and appreciated objects for actually millions of years, and yet somehow in the last 500 years it has become something quite different and separate, something which is associated with power and status and privilege and perhaps put on a plinth behind closed doors. Get this, uh -huh. the screen sold at auction for 120 million. 
dollars. It's widely believed casino king Steve Wynn has sold one of Picasso's most famous paintings to hedge fund king Steve Cohen for a record $155 million. So I'm really keen to try and build those bridges and reconnect people back to something which is fundamentally part of who we are. I once had a really interesting conversation with some people in Cardiff where I was going to do a project. The discussion had been about hole sizes and whether, you know, you didn't want to make something that somebody could kind of climb up. So we made some of the holes a bit smaller, lower down. But then the street sweeping guys said um, people will wedge disposable coffee cups in the holes. And we just sort of all looked at him like, what? And he said, yeah, it happens all the time and it's a real pain for my workers to have to remove all these cups and stuff. And I said, what about the gap between railings? And he said, we don't like that either. <laughs> so essentially, at some point, you'd be very lucky if anything ever got made because someone's always going to have something awkward to say about something, you know, whether it's the wrong colour and it's facing the wrong way or, or something. You know. My name is Simon Perriton, I'm an artist, and I've made um, some public artwork commissions for Farringdon Station as part of the Crossrail project, the Elizabeth Line, as it's now known. So my studio is quite tiny, it's quite compact, it's got a lot of stuff in it because I've just had a whole delivery of stuff back and it hasn't gone into storage yet. It used to be very easy for me to say what I did, I used to just cut things out of paper and that was really straightforward and then just to make my life more difficult I stopped doing that and started doing all sorts of other weird and wonderful things. I always think it's a bit like working one of those kind of um, museum archive spaces, it has that sort of feel to it and it's quite, it's quite a calm place to work so I quite like that. And at the moment, I have a sort of odd selection. In the more recent sort of, you know, five, six years, I suppose my work has changed and I've done a lot more larger public artwork commissions. And now I'm one of those really boring artists that has a real difficulty explaining what they do. In some way, I probably always work with a kind of cutout. But in subject matter, I often return to nature-based things or very often punk things. I've got some stuff on the computer which I can show you. I don't know, I, I haven't actually used it since I've um, moved here, but this is um, a project that I did which is on glass, but it's actually a cut vinyl thing that was done on two sides of the glass up at uh, the headquarters for Camden Council. And it's like a whole run based on plant imagery, a kind of nature park that's behind the site. In the art world, or in the art world that I understand, I suppose, public art, I think it's often thought of as being quite challenging. Public art commissions are decided by other people first, you know, like where it's going to be and how much it's going to be, the budget is to do it and all those sort of things. So you're kind of instantly not in total control of that situation and a lot of artists have a problem with that. And in a way, there's a democracy that happens with public art. The thing about making art and putting it in art galleries is it's quite a rarefied world. Certain sorts of people go to art galleries, generally speaking. So you're kind of talking to the converted. The interesting challenge for public art is you're suddenly faced with somebody from the street who doesn't come with that art history baggage, if you like. So you have to kind of 
present your ideas in a way that a new audience would understand. For me, often I feel that the sort of art in that situation becomes about the negotiation at the beginning of the project. It's very hard to get something extremely offensive, either visually or conceptually, past all of those kind of sets of people. And some of that persuasion is artistic, is, you know, is conceptually creative. Yeah, this one is, um, this is the, the found sculpture park. These were all the things that this guy was selling. And then we put little kind of figures inside as if we were sort of visiting a sculpture park. He was selling a strange earthenware pot, a kind of glass dolphin, um, a polar bear, a cheese board. I think that's a budgerigar or something. I do consult with the public wherever possible. I mean, it makes sort of more work for the project. But actually you end up with something that's more kind of embedded in the community and has a sort of relevance to it. And you don't want to have a situation where everything is watered down so that, you know, Charlie in the shop likes it and somebody else doesn't like it. It's not, it's not as, as crass as that, but very often if you're not careful, public art can just be something which is kind of plonked into a, you know, a community or a space or a place and it's resented because no one understands quite why it's there because no one's taken the time to explain what it is. And, it, and there's, a, there's an arrogance about that that I don't like. Oh, I could show you the Oxford project quickly. So, so the Oxford, I made a tree. It's like a seven-metre cast of an ash tree with these little banners that have text in that were generated by departments on the university. And then there were also some sort of bike stands that we had made specifically with these things going around them. Public art definitely has the propensity to be controversial because you're dealing with the public. <laughs> so people have a wide gamut of what they approve of in terms of what they think art is as well. The thing that I always think is quite funny, I had a friend who worked at the Tate in St Ives and he was talking about the sorts of shows that people tended to want in the local community. And they really just wanted... Ben Nicholson, Alfred Wallace and a bit of Barbara Hepworth on a kind of cyclical rotation. And the idea that they might have something more contemporary and young was completely shocking to them. But as we both pointed out to each other, you know, in the 1920s and 1930s, you know, everybody hated Barbara Hepworth and Alfred Wallace and Ben Nicholson because they thought it was all too new and too shocking, you know. So then transpose that into a public arena, it's kind of potentially disastrous. I'm stood in the former garden at Yorkshire Sculpture Park, which is one of the most beautiful parts of the park. It's very tendered, very formal. Public art serves many purposes. One of the purposes is to beautify a place, and I think that has value. You know, there is a place for art which is uplifting and beautiful and stimulating. Other reasons are to challenge, to pose questions, to animate and activate a space. And we're looking at an artwork by Hilary Jack, which uh, says, no borders, just horizons, only freedom. And it's a neon text artwork on a scaffolding structure and really stands out in this landscape because it pings against the huge rhododendron bush behind it. And particularly If people are not used to visiting museums and galleries, they don't have daily experience of art, for them to walk down a street and suddenly be confronted by something which is utterly other, I think is really valuable. We do quite a lot of work, for example, in hospitals because it's been proven that having an aesthetic experience can help with recovery and well-being. 
The historic examples of public art really do reveal the social hierarchies of the past. So if you imagine Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square, which is actually a ridiculous sculpture when you think about it because the plinth is so high you can't even make him out. But that was to show how important he was, that he was elevated way higher than the rest of us. And you look at the statuary of Britain, there are 79 statues of men on horseback in Britain and there are six of women on horseback. And that shows that white men were at the forefront of society. What's brilliant now is that the way public art is exploding is really being much more representative of what our society is really made up of. In front of me is a horse jump, which is a coffin horse jump by Katrina Palmer. And this coffin jump is the hardest of its type. It's the highest. And it comprises a ditch and a 1.3-metre hedge fence. So Katrina Palmer was invited to make a proposal to commemorate the work of the First Aid Nursing Yeomanry, an incredible group of women who, in the First World War, self-organised to go rescue men from the front line. And initially, they were horseback nurses, and across the, the lower half of the fence, she has painted texts that were inspired by her research, for example, it says nothing special happened. And nothing special happened was a phrase that appeared in the nurses' diaries quite a lot in the war, even on days where they'd rescued many men. And it was the humility of that that really resonated for Katrina. I think my favourite sculpture is the, um, the big face. <laughs> which is like, it's a big face and it looks really cool when you're the other side of the pond. The landscape. I think that's the best sculptured piece. I mean, the whole landscape's a sculptured piece. Do you know what? I don't know the name of it. The coffin. Oh, is it the jump? It said under it, the jump. The coffin or the jump. My favourite bit's the Sean Scully one. What's it called? Inside Out? kind of reminds me of my flat at home because it's <laughs> surrounded by buildings, but it's like a really nice reminder because it's out here in the countryside. My name is Christina Anderson and I'm the Crossrail Art Programme Manager. We are currently working with nine artists across seven stations to integrate artworks into the stations at the Elizabeth Line. I first heard about Simon Perriton when we started to work with Sadie Cole's gallery, which is our partner gallery for Farringdon Station, and we started to discuss the long list of artists that we would uh, consider for the project. Yeah, today we're at Farringdon Station, uh, going down to look at the crossrail platforms. Um, yeah, I've not seen it for a while, so it'd be good. I've got a bit of a soft spot for Farringdon Station, actually, I have to say. I might have done it as if it, if it had been a different tube station, I guess, but it was somewhere that I used to live near when I first moved to London, and it's a station that I used quite a lot. We were living in Kentish Town at the time, and it was, a, it was part of that main route that I would use to go to you know, Tate Modern or something, so it was local to me, which I quite liked. I'm in the process of putting on my PPE. 
equipment. Personal protective equipment, which consists of a large orange jacket and trousers. Rather fetching Dayglo orange Alexander McQueen <laughs> outfit. Um, spring summer, 19. Um, yeah, my PPE wear, hard hat, glasses. You've got used gloves. Yeah. Quite like it, yeah. I should, yeah. <laughs> should have my so we selected uh, Simon's proposal mostly because he came across quite obviously to be one of the more considerate of the station architecture and it was very obvious very early on that he was very open to being collaborative and obviously his artwork from the early stages of concept development was really striking so we did think that it would look incredible at the end too. Yeah. Oh wow, we've come right in this bit, great. I know. Yeah. Oh, there's so much time here. All the lighting is on now. Oh, and there's a barrier and everything. I didn't realise it. Yeah, that's great. And here we are. Avalanche is based on a series of cutouts of some jewels that I made a number of years ago. And it's a kind of tumbling freeze of jewels. And I suppose in a way the idea for me is that the movement of the jewels echoes the movement of passengers through the space. And then of course it directly relates to Hatton Garden and that kind of whole jewel district which is not very far away. Um, so we are currently at the Western Tinker Hall and we are here to view the completed artwork by Simon. The title Simon has given the artwork is Avalanche, which I think is quite a fitting title, essentially because these jewels do seem to tumble down the walls and round the station ticket hall. So this is the first time we're seeing it all in one, all backlit, all complete. Um, seeing it like this is definitely a great moment. Are you happy with the result? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's worked. You know, it's a public artwork, so the, the proof of the pudding is going to be when the public starts seeing it. What I quite like is the way all these colours change. I mean, in a way, for me, it's a much more muted palette than I would normally work with, but part of that is to do with the fact that it's ceramic ink and you can't necessarily achieve, you know, day glow pinks and yellows and stuff like that. But the other thing about that is I don't think I would have wanted to have used those colours in this space because the space is a busy space. You know, some people will be coming through this station twice a day, five days a week, you know, 50 weeks of the year or something. So, they're all, you know, it's, it's got to be something that works in a different way. It's not like sitting in a, you know, an art gallery or a museum looking at a bit of work for two hours or three hours. So it's been incredible to work with Simon and I think the key reason for that is just how collaborative he's been. So he's constantly listening and conscious of the views of the architect and the engineers and on a project such as these where you have hundreds of people working on each individual site, that is really, really important with an artist. You set the parameters to be just loose enough to be able to control it as much as you need to, but yeah, I mean, you've got to be able to steer it a bit because it is my artwork, but I quite like accidents. I quite like the way those things, and generally I think as an artist, the accidents are where the good things happen. 
So we're now in what will be the Eastern Ticket Hall, and this piece is called Spectre, which is partly because of the way it looks slightly ghost-like. Funnily enough, this artwork, even though it's the simplest in terms of its design, was the one that was the trickiest to get technically, technically um, how we wanted it. We tried to control all of the way it was made, but at some point you have to kind of work with you know, the people who are fabricating as well. They become part of that whole collaborative process. And in fact, when the sample came in, the sample came back to, to you guys first, to the Crossrail team, and they noticed this kind of ridge. I remember that moment so vividly because I was so nervous about your reaction and you were stood there looking at the sample panel for what felt like an hour, but obviously it was probably a matter of seconds. Yeah. And then Simon just goes, I really like it. And you could just hear yeah. the sigh of relief in everyone's. <laughs> I think that was, cause that was after we'd had possibly yeah. like the sixth It was probably the sixth, yeah, and we really had to get on with fabricating this artwork so as well. It's been a very long journey. It's been a tough journey too, thinking back to when I started in 2011 when we didn't even have an artist on board to suddenly now working with nine incredible artists delivering ten artworks across seven very complex stations. It's incredible to start to see these artworks going up. I have gained such a massive understanding of the process of integrating public artworks into a space and how hard these artists work. When public art works really well, it visibly becomes part of a community. Anthony Gormley has a great quote that you don't get great art by committee. And I do subscribe to that. There has to be an element of creative control that the artist has. But I think by bringing people into a conversation, you can create artwork which is relevant to them and which is meaningful. There is a key moment in Anthony Gormley's Angel of the North, I think, when it had been an incredibly controversial proposal to build the Angel of the North. There was a huge protest. And there was a moment where, after it was built, some local businessmen paid £1,000 to have a shearer shirt made and put on it. Come on, get up there. And that was claiming that artwork as part of their community. And Gormley says himself that that was when he knew he'd won them over. <laughs> in an age of austerity when there are cuts to services to health service there is often an argument against spending on art and on public art because it's seen as not important but the counter argument to that is that it's a very small amount of money that is spent on public art in reality and the value that comes back in return is more than compensated for the initial outlay. For example, Sculpture Park, we know that for every pound of public funding we get, we put £10 back into the regional economy. So there are very strong economic cases, let alone the lifestyle and wellbeing benefits to people of having art in their environment. Free public art is so integral to um, ensuring that our future generations learn about art as well, in the same way we've been allowed to. I think public art has the ability to increase people's sense of well-being, of belonging, to help in placemaking. It, it makes me feel involved, I guess, with the art world. I'm much more open now 
to looking at all sorts of different things. Also, you can look and you can understand perhaps maybe it means something to you. It might not be the same as the artist. I think that it's so important for us as young artists to, you know, open up the boundaries and barriers, like for everybody to enjoy our art as we are. So I think that it would be really important for us as artists to give back in that way. This episode of State of the Arts was brought to you by Selfridge's broadcast channel, Hot Air. It was a Radio Wolfgang production and featured Helen Phoebe, Simon Periton and Christina Anderson. The producers were Elle Scott and Holly Aquilina. The sound designer was Ivan Manley and the executive producer was Ellie Martino. Special thanks to Colin Ledwith and Soji Abbas. To find out more about Selfridge's State of the Arts campaign and upcoming events, visit selfridges.com forward slash state of the arts. <laughs>